epistle lesson this morning is found in the second half of Romans 7. We're reading verses 7 through 25. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word, and as we come to a particularly tangled and difficult chapter, hard subject, we ask for your help. It's only in your light that we see light. And so teach us wonderful things from your word and your truth this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are good reasons not to preach through the book of Romans, and one of those is this chapter that we have before us this morning. Romans chapter 7 is infamous for its tangled kind of back and forth, this dialectic in which Paul is speaking about himself and then speaking about sin, and everybody wonders exactly what he is talking about. And I have to confess to you that over the years I've changed my views on this chapter and found myself, even over the past few months, in preparing to preach on Romans 7, changing my view once again. To some of the, you, this will come with great consternation, others to you with great delight. Last time I preached on this was six years ago here at Christ Church, and one of our elders came up to me and said, that was a very fine sermon and you're completely wrong. But this is difficult material, but yet also designed to be an encouragement 
to the people of God who live in the time between the times, that is between the resurrection of Jesus and his final return. It's designed to give you encouragement to be a buoy to you in the middle of all of that difficulty and the conflict and the tensions that you and I feel. He was convalescing on the southern shore of England in 1886, Robert Louis and Louis Stevenson. And over the course of three frenetic, frantic days, his family records, he wrote his novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's short, but yet incredibly clear. It's the story of Dr. Henry Jekyll, a respectable gentleman, and the story of the sinister Mr. Hyde, a wicked man, self-indulgent and uncaring about the needs of others. Of course, in the story, the two turn out to be one. They are the same man. Jekyll had concocted a serum that allowed him to transform into Hyde so that he could go out and indulge his vices without detection. It introduces us in the form of story to the uncomfortable reality of the tensions that live inside of us. It's not just about someone out there. One person with two very different sides. It's an extreme case, but it is because it is extreme, the monstrous proportions of it, that allows us to delve into the nuances of the tensions we feel inside of our own hearts. Paul captures these tensions very powerfully in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He then furthers it in verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now this can be incredibly confusing. Because in Romans chapter 6, Paul has just announced that we have been definitively set free from the power and the control of sin. That in being united to Jesus by faith, when we're baptized into him and when we believe in him, we participate in his death and in his resurrection and we have been brought to new life. This frees us from sin's power we've seen. But obviously, at the end of chapter 6, Paul also gives us a commandment, instruction, that we're not to submit ourselves to sin's reign. And so it's not just the whole story that we've been freed from sin's power. There's also a continued resistance because we've not been freed from sin's presence. And so what we have in these chapters, from chapter 6 to chapter 8, is complexity. There's tension, tension in the already and the not yet of your and of my redemption that lies in Jesus. And in chapter 7, Paul explores the negative side of that. He speaks to the complex issue of our relationship with sin. And there's three things in particular that he highlights about that complex relationship in order to help us. First, he'll explore the knowledge of sin. Second, he will enter into the conflict we experience with sin. 
And finally, as he closes, he will speak of our deliverance from that sin. And so let's take each of those to break down Paul's argument here. First, as we deal with that complexity, we're exposed to our knowledge of sin. This is Paul's argument in verses 7 through 14. He speaks of a growing awareness of sin that comes through the law. Last week we discussed this was no fault of the law. The law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. The law reveals to us the righteous will of God. It gives us his good and clean commandments that direct us to what's pleasing to him. But in verse 7, we learn that if it hadn't been for the law, Paul says he wouldn't have known what sin was. He then goes on in verse 9 to say that he was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and that he died. This is not to say that sin isn't registered before God without the law, but rather Paul is saying that the law makes us aware. The law brings sin to our perception. It wakes us up and brings us into the knowledge of sin. The law discloses to us the righteous and the holy will of God. As we saw last week, it serves as a mirror. It allows us to see ourselves and our sin clearly. It penetrates. And this is necessary for us. Even though it's difficult and it isn't always the stuff that we want to discuss. But the piercing power of the law and its penetrating and disclosing ability is necessary. John Calvin, the Genevan reformer, captures this necessity very perfectly. He says, without the law, we are either too dull to discern our own depravity, or we are made entirely devoid of sense through self-flattery. And so he's saying we need the law because we're either too dull to really look at our sins, and we're always going to minimize that, or we're self-deceived, and we pump ourselves up with a sense of righteousness. And this is what the law does. It's like a hammer. It breaks all of this up. It awakens us from our slumber. It induces and incites the knowledge of sin and brings us to awareness and perception of it. And what's important for us here, especially when we look at Paul's illustration as he speaks about coveting in these verses, is we recognize that the law is not simply satisfied with external conformity. That it's not simply a list of rules that we can just keep by some outward form of observance. But the law is spiritual. That the law has always required an inward righteousness and obedience to God that comes from the heart. And in this way, it is that the law of God is very different than human laws. For instance, in my neighborhood, there is a two and a half mile strip of roadway called Floor Branch. And the speed limit that St. John's County has set on this two lane, nearly country road back to my house is 35 tedious miles an hour. And from time to time, the St. John's County Sheriff will post himself along Floor Branch and he will clock people and give them tickets. And so what the sheriff asks of me as a citizen of the county is that I not exceed 35 miles an hour. 
and due to my desire to avoid paying unnecessary money to the county beyond what is already paid, I do my best to stick somewhere roughly in the spirit of that law. But I can also tell you that my attitude about driving 37 miles an hour down Floor Branch is not good. But what the sheriff asks of me is simply an external conformity, that I not speed, that I observe this law. But what that speed limit sign cannot do, it cannot change my attitude. And also the sheriff cannot ticket me for feeling the way I feel as I pass him as he clocks others and mercilessly pulls them over. But friends, the divine law is not like the human law. It's not simply about external conformity. It drives down into the thoughts. It exposes the motives. It reveals all of these things and it takes us into a deeper knowledge and perception and awareness of sin. And in fact, what we'll see is that deeper knowledge, awareness, and perception is tightly tied to Christian maturity itself. But this is the first piece that Paul takes us into, is our knowledge of sin. And second, when we arrive in verses 15 through 23, we then fully explore the nature of our conflict with sin. We see the intensity of the conflict here as Paul speaks in dialectical terms going back and forth. He speaks of the Christian who delights in God's law. That is the one who has been taught by the Spirit to approve of God's will. Listen to what he says once again. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so God, by his spirit, has taught us to delight in his law, to love him and to seek the good of our neighbor, to not be closed in upon ourselves. And we agree with that. We see the beauty and the goodness of that order of life and how this leads to human flourishing when we rightly commune with God and we rightly commune with those around us. These are the standards that pull us out of a self-enclosed life that turns us in upon ourselves. And it frees us to be the creatures that God has always intended us to be. However, we see in the passage that the same person who delights in the law of God, who approves of that law and finds it good, there's also another law, Paul says, at work within them. A law that makes them captive to sin. It's the same dynamic that we read of in Psalm 119. As the psalmist professes his love for the law, the goodness of the law, of all that God has given there, and then also announces that he's like a wandering sheep. And friends, this is the dynamic of the Christian life. It is the dynamic that you and I have been thrust into when we've been intersected by the grace of God and we come to know Jesus. It's the complexity of Christian experience. And there's three critical things to say and to note about that experience. So please follow these. 
First, this conflict, this back and forth that you and I experience between the law of God, the goodness of it, and the law of sin at work within us, that conflict points to the reality of grace in your life. If grace had not intersected your path, then the bottom line is that you would not be concerned enough to feel the conflict. That yes, you are too dull and you are too self-flattered when left to yourself to be worried about this. That the conflict you feel is actually given to you by the grace of God. And so some people, when they feel this conflict, they say to themselves and they say to their pastor, I don't know that I'm a Christian. I don't know that I'm converted. And what Paul is arguing here, that no, that conflict itself, the very fact that you're having this interior argument is evidence that the grace of God and the resurrected power of Jesus is alive and at work in your life. It's the first thing to note. Second, we have been set free from the power, the controlling power of sin. But this does not mean that sin will not continue to pretend to own us. Sin's tenure is over. It's announced that it's been removed. But sin will continue to attempt to exert influence, claiming squatter's rights over you in your body. It's something like the Iraqi war. In 2003, is March 19th, there were 26 days of combat in which coalition forces invaded the nation of Iraq. It was very clear, except for the announcements of the public relations department there, that Saddam Hussein was not going to return to power. He had not been captured. He was actually found some months later, hiding in a hole, protected by neighbors and friends. It was somewhat confusing for the Western eyes that were watching the nightly news to see that he had been captured. Because we had seen for weeks, the streets were filled with Iraqis celebrating and dancing and tearing down the images of Hussein that littered the country. But in the hunt for Saddam, as they were looking for him, Coalition forces met incredible resistance. It was a reticence to help them actually locate them. Locals knew where he was hiding, but they simply didn't want to give him up. And you have to ask the question, why were they celebrating on the one hand and then yet reticent to help on the other? And it points to the conflict that you and I experience as Christians as well. They understood what Saddam was capable of. They had lived under his shadow for many long years, and they did fear that he was going to come back into power. And so long under that shadow, they remained in fear of betraying him and of revolting against him. And friends, that's the conflict that you and I live with. We have labored so long. The habits are so ingrained in us by sin that we sometimes fear revolting against it, turning away. We don't take up the freedom that is properly ours and that ours, and that is the conflict within us. The third important thing to note about this conflict is that the outcome of it is not uncertain. 
When we read Romans 7, sometimes it's common to read it in a dualistic fashion, where we feel like there's two men at war within us, two opposing sides, and we're not sure exactly which one is going to win out. And this is where we have to keep this chapter in the context of everything that's being said in 6 through 8. Because this is not a dualistic reality in which one self vies against the other for supremacy. But rather the supremacy has been established and the outcome is known. And Christian faith announces that the outcome is known. And it's not known because of your greatness. It's not known because of your virtue. It's not known due to your excellence. The outcome is known because of Jesus. That when he died and when he rose and when you've been united to him, the outcome has been announced. Something took place outside of you. Something was done on your behalf that secures that outcome. Sin is beaten. It has no victory. And you have been made new. That statement is not a statement of feeling. It's a statement of fact, of declaration. God has made you new. He has thrust you into this conflict. And as you experience that conflict, this is the evidence of grace in your life. And so, yes, deep conflict. The tensions are real, but the outcome is certain. The third part of Paul's argument here is he takes us into this complexity of our relationship with sin, is we also see our deliverance from it. If you follow with me in verses 24 and 25 as he closes the chapter. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a cry here. It's one of desperation where he announces, wretched man that I am, because of this divided self and all the conflict that he feels within himself. And then he asks the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And friends, this is the question, not of an immature or backslidden Christian. It's not one who's just fallen on hard times. This is the question of a mature and very sober-minded Christian. One who knows that he's been announced and declared righteous by faith in Jesus. And it is that Christian who desires deeply for there to be a correspondence between that declaration that comes from God and an ability to answer the claims of the gospel, to yield ourselves to God. And yet we feel deeply the gap between those two. As we come to know God ever nearer, we feel that gap even more profoundly. And we feel the sharpness of sin ever more profoundly. And so it is that conflict with sin that creates the question, who can deliver me? But it's also important to recognize that that question is not one of despair. It's not one of gloom. There is this profound confidence that Paul expresses when he says, thanks be to God. 
because he is sure and he is certain that Jesus is up from the dead. And everything is anchored in that moment for the Christian. It's not anchored in our performance and how we feel we're doing in the exact moment. That Jesus will continue to work with us in that. But his confidence, the grounding and the anchor of that confidence is rooted in what Christ has done, that he has terminated our condemnation. And at long last, he will set us free in the resurrection. It's then this knowledge that defines the Christian life. It defines it in one central way, and that is the act of thanksgiving. Yes, you are mired in incredible complexity. Between the already and the not yet of your redemption, and sin bothers you, it burdens you, it comes for you. You feel the back and forth of the dialectic of I want to do this, but yet I do that. But in the midst of that, the Christian has confidence that Jesus has delivered us from this and Jesus will deliver us from this. And it is this that creates thanksgiving in the present. And this is the defining characteristic of the Christian life, one of thanksgiving, an incredible awareness and knowledge of sin. And if we're not trafficking in sin in church, and we're not talking about it and exploring it and confessing it and using the law of God to search the heart, then we're not really engaging with the gospel. Several years ago, someone had attended a worship service that I was leading and said, well, it's, it's kind of formal and you, you do a lot with sin. You're always talking about it and you're confessing it and I don't like how you do that every week. Can't you do that like once a month? And what my friend was missing was he's missing the very dynamics of the gospel. That yeah, there are certain parts to form that are just cultural expressions. But yet liturgy is always intended to be a guide to take you into the dynamics of grace. Into this thanksgiving. That it should be leading us down into the knowledge of sin. It should take you to the end of yourself. In fact, maybe we should create a part of the liturgy that says, wretched man that I am. Can you imagine saying that in unison? But thanks be to God. This is the dynamic of Christian worship. It's the dynamic of the Christian life. It's the knowledge of what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's the knowledge of what Jesus is doing within us in the present conflict that you and I feel. And it's the knowledge of what he will do for us when he summons your body from dust and pulls it back together and frees you, not only from the power of sin, but from its presence and harassment. And so, friends, our lives are not characterized by despair, no matter the heat of the battle. They're characterized by doxology, because it's focused upon one person. It's focused upon Jesus. And so, yes, you're mired in complexity. You feel it, I feel it. Every Christian throughout the history of the world feels it. But that complexity doesn't lead to despair. We take the knowledge of sin that the law exposes 
and we allow that to drive us to Jesus. We experience the conflict of sin, and we know that that's ultimately a gift of grace, that we feel that conflict inside of us, and we look to Jesus in the midst of that because we ultimately long for deliverance. We know that we've been delivered from the power, but we long to be freed from the presence of sin completely. And we announce the thanksgiving that those two gifts are ours because of Jesus. And so in your complexity, don't lose heart. Be encouraged because you belong to him. He is yours and you are his. Let's pray. Father, we confess and acknowledge before you this morning that these things are complicated and they can go beyond us in a very tangled passage. But yet the profound and simple truths of the gospel are here for us. And so we thank you that you have intersected our lives. You have made us your own. You have set us free and you will set us free at last. And so grant us thankful hearts. That there be not despair, but there be doxology in us. And free us evermore, day by day, from the presence of sin. And encourage us in the hope of our final deliverance from it. We pray in Jesus' name.